So hello again, everyone. We already have a few people joining. Um, I have the pleasure to have the next speakers on the lineup of speakers in the new game of leadership, Mike Asule and Adia Vivi. They're both clinical psychologists and organizational development um, therapists and organizational psychologists. I've had a conversation previously with Mark Azule. I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Mark. No, you nailed it. Apologies. Uh, okay. No, it's perfect. <laughs> I, I loved our talk previously, and I know that you've been collaborating with uh, Dr. Uh, Avivi for quite some time, and you're working together on uh, helping organizations um, build better teams from within. So I'm curious to hear about your view of leadership or how leadership is seen through the eyes of organizational psychology. So we're going to be talking about unmet needs. I don't know much about you, so please feel free to introduce yourselves for the audience. Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I mostly work with groups. And um, what I found is that groups in psychotherapy operate very similarly to groups in teams and in, um, in the corporate world, that the same pushes and pulls that create issues um, that might halt the progress of a therapy group might be at play for the corporate world or for teams who work together toward a task at the workplace. So that became, became an interest of mine. And I'm lucky enough that Mark um, my colleague is also interested in that and he's also a certified group therapist. And I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit, Mark. Yeah, for sure. We look at, you know, it's cool that we met. Uh, we actually met in a group therapy training, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. We're part of the uh, American Group Psychotherapy Association, which is a large group therapy organization. And yeah, pretty much the same thing. Um, I started working in Boulder, Colorado. I work with startup leaders, entrepreneurs, founders, things like that, um, helping them develop soft skills and helping them you know, build teams and create organizations that work. You know, a lot of these people that I work with are brilliant, right? They're incredible engineers, they're great computer programmers, they have really ambitious ideas, but what they lack is how to make a social dynamic work, you know, how to connect with other people, how to um, create a positive work culture. So those partnerships have been really rewarding for me because I feel like I can take my skills as a psychotherapist and apply it to have some real impact in the world. You know, if I can help, you know, I work with teams that do, you know, cancer drug research, that do, you know, innovative apps, that do, um, you know, environmental projects. If I, I feel like if I can help keep those companies together, then I can have some real impact um, on my local community by fostering these pro-social projects that I believe in. So our presentation today is entitled Unmet Needs, uh, Recreating Your Family Dynamics in the Workplace. So the core assumption that we're having here is that we have these family roles, right? We, we learn how to be a human as we're a child. And we then we take that role, especially if we don't do any therapy, any treatment or self-development, and we bring it right into the workplace front and center. So what Adi and I are going to do is we're going to blend our backgrounds in psychology and organizational development and help you all that are listening either live or on the recording, you know, pop the hood on your teams, on your organizations and see what's going on underneath the surface. All right. So, so what would you like to share? Share oh, the screen you, or not yet? I thought that. Oh, I thought Mark, we were sharing the screen. Mark, are you? I'm seeing yeah, Mark's I, I am screen. the screen. Yes, yes, I only had you in full screen while you were speaking, but now you want to see the full screen of, screen of sharing, right? Yes, yes. Yes. 
So we're going to talk about how to discover how your early life and your employees' early life experience influenced your current leadership, leadership style and why certain people will react in a certain way that might be difficult or challenging. We'll learn how to identify projection. That is, when somebody puts something on you or you put something on someone else in terms of the emotional content um, and see it as reality and induction. Am I containing some emotion that someone else put out there? Am I observing, uh, absorbing something inside in the workplace environment? Um, and how to practice communication strategies that can address those childhood patterns and conditioning. The reason is, we wanna do all this, is that how we were brought up and the child that we were was a very formative aspect of our development as a human being, as a person, our personality, our patterns, what we expect from others, what we need from others in order to strive. So it stands to reason that that's going to come to play in the workplace. The, the beauty of it is that most people in the workplace, they're not psychotherapists. They're not there to therapize each other. That's not the point. Most organizations have a goal to produce something, to reach some kind of end goal, um, to have deadlines and tasks met. And so those family dynamics could be recruited. It could be extremely useful if somebody is adaptive in it. However, it can also stand in the way. If somebody is stuck in a family role that they can't take themselves out of, then their creativity and their flexibility might be taken away. So for us as leaders, as bosses, um, as, as um, people who employ others, who have teams, it's really, really useful to start getting to know those patterns. And we're gonna talk a little bit about some psychology stuff that could be helpful and how to address it. So as a child is growing up, every single child without exception is trying to answer the question, am I lovable? And that can look like a few things. That can look like, do I belong in this family? Are my needs getting met? Do my parents give me time and attention? Do they listen to me? Do they know me? A child is always asking this question, am I lovable? And for children that live in relatively healthy families, the, the answer is usually, yes, good enough, right? We never really feel completely lovable, but sometimes we can, we usually feel good enough. But many leaders, especially the ones that, you know, Adi and I work with, don't come from perfect families. They come from families that have substance abuse. They've come with families that maybe have um, physical or mental abuse. Um, they come with families that are maybe ne neglectful, or they come from, you know, disenfranchised um, minority populations where the, the upbringing is a lot more difficult. And that question doesn't get answered, right? they feel like, no, I'm not lovable, or I need to do a certain thing or be a certain way in order to be lovable. This translates directly into the workplace with the question of, am I competent? Which if you pop the hood, it's the same question, right? It's again, do I belong here? Am I good at my job? Am I getting enough attention? Do I feel like I'm valued? Am I respected, right? Are people invested in my growth? This need translates directly into the workplace. And again, almost all employees without exception are asking them the question of, am I competent? So the idea is that the child will develop a role, will develop a way of answering this question, of checking this question out to seeing if they're lovable or not, seeing if they're confident or not, and then play that out again and again. So we're gonna help you to learn how to identify when that's happening in the workplace and how to work with it. So one, uh, this is a sentence that actually Mark taught me, which I, I like and have a caveat about. If it's hysterical, it's historical. 
Well, what do we mean by hysterical? If there are very, very strong emotion and a strong response to a situation that, at least on the surface, does not call for it, there might be historical childhood stuff coming up for someone. I wanted, the, my caveat is the word hysterical was used to really point a finger at women and women's um, emotional response to situation in a derogatory way that has kind of like that, that old misogynistic idea that women are irrational and responds emotionally. And that's why this sentence is beautiful here. It's important to note that some emo so something that might look emotional to us might not be rooted in historical aspects of a particular individual family pattern. A lot of time when people come from minority status, if they are one of very few or maybe the only black person or brown person in a company, or they have other minority status such as being LGBTQIA or anything else, then it might be harder for the organization to accept them and to give them space. So labeling that person hysterical is an, a very problematic patriarchal behavior. So I just wanna put it out there, really pay attention. Is my company allowing different cultures and different ways of expression to be? Or am I labeling something problematic because it's challenging the status quo, which is not the same thing. We're, in our presentation, we are looking at problems. When somebody's emotional reaction is disproportional to the situation and actually creates a problem in communication in, in meeting the team's goals, in meeting the workplace and vision or mission to create a product or to build something or to sell something, whatever it is that the company does. So the way it looks in, in the family is the child is responding to the parent in a similar way to the, the employee to the leader or the child to the sibling as the employee to another team member. What is that about? We call that transference. Freud, yay, Freud. Yes, that name is coming up in the presentation. Um, saw that the people that he worked with, the, the clients that or patients that came for him for therapy, sometimes responded to him in a way that was quite extreme. Um, yes, please ask us questions whenever we love questions. We love stopping and, and then answering the, the questions that come up. Um, so what Freud saw is that the way people responded to him emotionally with extreme love or extreme anger wasn't really in relation to who he was. He was not that arrogant to think that every woman will fall in love with him. And many of his patients did. So he realized that something is coming up, that they're responding to him as if he was someone else. And that's what we talk about when we say transference. We, say, we look at a pattern of emotional correspondence that doesn't belong to this current situation. So for example, um, some boss is giving mild feedback and the employee in front of them shuts down and maybe doesn't even show up to work the next day. A very strong emotional response, feeling very rejected or very insulted or feeling unheard, some very strong reaction. And we call it transfers because it's transferred from the original person with whom that interaction initiated to this person currently in front of me that isn't doing what the old person did. 
And that's very important to note. And typically when we think of transference, we also want to think about counter transference. Managers might have this idea or, or bosses might have this idea that it's more common for employees. Not true. You as a manager and as a leader might have as much transferential material coming up because it's not that easy to be the leader. It's a lot of responsibility. You might have your own historical aspect of what does it mean to be on top and to tell other what to do? What does it mean to say to anybody what to do um, and to have responsibility? So be curious. Are there family stuff and old patterns coming up for the person in front of me and for me as well? And that will make you most effective. Next, I'm telling that to Mark. <laughs> so like we were saying earlier is these family roles, right? To connect it, get transferred into the workplace. And what we're gonna go through, there's six of them, um, a deep about 15 minutes to go through six of them, is the idea is that these roles are evidence-based. They're usually found in families with a substance abuser, um, an alcoholic typically, uh, but they also have translated into places where there are other types of abuse. Um, and I would say, frankly, through my work as a psychotherapist, they tend to show up in most families. Now, I would encourage you as you're listening, you know, either live or on the recording, to think about these family roles and to see if one of them, many of them relate to you, relate to your employees, try to make this real. Um, maybe take some notes as you're writing to see, you know, can you identify where these are showing up? And we'll be telling you how to work with them in the second half of the presentation. And the last thing I wanna say before diving into it is that, Oftentimes people can hold more than one role in a family. So you might be a mix of a few of them. Uh, you might not just be pigeonholed into one. And it becomes problematic when someone really gets stuck in one and they are repeating the same thing over and over again. That's when it's, I think, our job specifically as leaders to step in and to start to do some interventions to try to see what's going on underneath the hood, um, why someone feels trapped in a certain type of role. Do you, do you have the reason is, yeah, I just want to say that if, if you have this one role that you rely on, and that's the only thing that you can bring, and th those are going to come up in times of tension and stress and conflict, say, um, when half the company had to be laid off or a global pandemic starts and you have to shift from moving in the uh, working in the office together to everybody off working at home from Zoom. Um, when something happens, you might be locked in a role. And if you're not flexible anymore and you don't have any other rabbit to take out of the hat and that's your thing, that's when we have a problem. If you can shift between one role to another flexibly, or if that role is very useful and actually adaptive to the needs of the team and your own needs as an individual, that's okay. So always think, is this a problem or is this just, it's fine, that's how things are and, and this is a needed role for the team and for me. So let's look at the roles. The first one is the wild child. Now, this is typically a problematic role. So it's, it's hard to, to think of this as an adaptive thing. In the family, this is the child that breaks the rules, maybe uses substances, maybe talks back to authority or her other problem with authority figures. Maybe they have problems in school. This is a person who creates chaos in the household. They might need therapy or they might need rehab. They might draw a lot of attention to themselves. They embody the fam family problem. In families that have a lot of problems, they might be um, 
actually representing a whole systematic issue. In the workplace, unless it's a very dysfunctional, toxic workplace, typically this person is an individual that creates problems for others because they don't complete their tasks and they're unreliable. They might use substances. They might come intoxicated or hungover to work. Um, they might attack the leadership or disregard the leadership. And they create situations in which others have to solve problems and clean messes for them. And they might show their emotions in an inappropriate way in a workplace or anywhere else for that matter. Unfortunately, it's very hard to work with someone like that. And that might be an objective, non-transferential issues for the work, uh, for the team and for you. And the way to manage that is be curious about what's going on, try to understand um, and be compassionate. However, you might need to involve HR if that's available for you and take disciplinary actions. Have a clear description of what needs to change and markers of when it needs to change and some very, very clear consequences of what happens if it does not change. Um, and that's the, the first and most obvious issue with a role. Next role. So our next role here is the hero. And this is the one that I tend to associate with the most. Um, these are the people that try to follow the rules that you know are very hardworking, they're often perfectionists. Um, these are the people that as a child, they learn to equate performance with love. If they just, you know, get all the medals and they get the best grades and they, you know, rock the sports team, then they're gonna get love. They're gonna feel accepted, they're gonna be part of the family. Um, What's underneath this, though, even though on the surface actually looks very adaptive, underneath this is incredible anxiety and insecurity. These people often carry a lot of fear into the workplace. They're often very critical of themselves um, and they're insecure because they, in their mind, they try very, very hard. And when they get feedback, they feel like the threat is that they're going to be rejected or fired or abandoned or left behind. Um, that's some of that hysterical things that come up where they're not able to take any kind of criticism because it goes straight to this idea of you don't love me. I'm not likable. I'm not good enough. It can spiral very quickly into shame. So in a workplace, this is the person that volunteers for everything, right? They overcommit. They often burn out very quickly. They, you know, they hide it, but you can tell that they're kind of dead inside. Uh, they're a workaholic. You know, it's the person that's staying late. That is taking on those extra projects that always wants to be the leader. You know, they're a ladder climber, they're a rule follower, and they have a rigid communication style, which essentially means they take things very literally. They want to know what is okay, what is not okay, because they're trying to win the game, right? They're trying to become the best, they're trying to advance, they're trying to get that promotion. Um, the way to manage this person is actually to be a little hands-off, allow them to come up with their own creative solutions, let them know what the expectations are and what the outcomes are, but let them figure out how they wanna get there, right? Tell them the what, let them figure out the how. Because these people are overachievers and they typically don't like being controlled, they want to feel like they're able to express themselves creatively, which is by working, right? Is actually by overperforming, you know, over-delivering. Um, so allowing them to figure out how they want to accomplish things and then validating and rewarding them for their efforts. You know, if you see that they spend a long time on a PowerPoint presentation, you know, or on a, on a docket, they might spend a long time working on things that are not that important and really trying to perfect very, very small things. So even saying things like, well, I read the color scheme on that PowerPoint, or, you know, this is really, this one sheet is really going to make our investors really make the difference on when we look for that funding round. Um, Little validations can really be helpful in keeping this person motivated and keeping them valued. And then lastly, creating room for feedback. 
and not really feedback on how they're doing, but really how they're feeling. This person is really, you know, obsessed with performance. So they might not be in touch with their emotions underneath. So creating casual spaces, consistent spaces to say, hey, how's it going? Do you like working here? What are your goals? What do you want to get out of this? Like, what do you like? What do you not like? And giving them that, you know, kind of leadership role, lets them experience and express their emotions and get some of that stuff out so that they're not sitting with resentment uh, in the workplace, which that can become quite toxic and turn to things like, you know, gossip and sabotage, which nobody wants. I want to add something that you had said to me about that role before, yeah. that it's also sometimes very helpful to tell them what's not expected. Mm-hmm. Tell them, you don't need to do this. This isn't your job. Because it's so hard for them sometimes to let go and allow other people or delegate that they might need to know explicitly what's not on their plate and they don't have to perform on. Um, so yeah, we can move to the lost child. So the lost child, especially in a, in a family that has some family issues, is the child that doesn't get attention. The one that is less known in the family that feels forgotten. Um, maybe this child is the middle child. So then the, you can think very, it's, it's very superficial, but you can think of the hero as the, the older child um, and we'll get to the clown and the mascot as a young child. The lost child could be this middle child that kind of like neither here nor there, quiet and withdrawn, doesn't speak or get a lot of attention, doesn't ask for a lot of attention. This child might suppress their needs. Even though they need love, attention and care from the parents like everybody else, they might tell themselves either doesn't have to even be verbally, but there's something inside of them tell them, I don't need this, this is too much, let me not ask, kind of quieting the need for to, to be loved and to be cared for. Um, it might be very hard for them to make decisions. They might be indecisive because that's taking a stand and that might draw attention to them. They might feel disconnected and unemotional and they feel misunderstood and invisible. Nobody knows me. Um, in the workplace, it might be very difficult for this person to tolerate attention. Opposite from the hero, validating them or celebrating them might feel very overwhelming and in the center for them. They might therefore not take initiative and be socially inhibited. Um, They'll be polite, but not really engaged, kind of not really invested fully in the the tasks and the the goals of the team and the the workplace. Um, They don't acknowledge their own potential. They don't really know what they're capable of because attention was so hard for them to tolerate and they're withdrawn. So the way to manage that is if you can make some time to meet with them individually, perhaps getting the attention one-on-one will be less intimidating. Support them when they make a decision, especially if it's a good decision, let them know. So they'll start trusting their own internal voice um, and reinforce team um, mentality and a sense of belonging. Make them feel that they are a part of your team, that they're as important to you as other people who might be more naturally taking in attention or claiming attention. Um, help that person find what, what is their potential, what can they excel in, and have some comfort with excellence. All right, next. So our next one is the scapegoat. And this that one is, is my pr- favorite. The scapegoat's so good. I know. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, can, I think both of us can be scapegoats in our, in our yes. groups too. Um, it's usually the person that is the whistleblower. It's the truth teller in the family. It's the person that comes across as critical sometimes, right? But what they're doing is they're pointing to the dysfunction in the family, right? Unfortunately, the way that they do that, and I can speak for myself, 
is not always that productive and they get, they pull a lot of attention, but they pull a lot of aggression. They can sometimes get blamed for a problem because they're saying the uncomfortable thing, you know? So they're the one that is, you know, telling the teacher about the alcoholic father, right? Or they're the one that is, you know, calling out the mother for lying during a family dinner, right? These are the people as a kid that are really invested in the truth and are constantly vocalizing the discomfort that they're having. In a toxic family, they can become the black sheep. They can actually be disconnected or hit with anger or sometimes even a victim of abuse because what they're saying is true, but very, very painful and hard to take in, especially if it's a family that has a family culture or, you know, we'll get to the workplace of keeping the status quo, right? Appearing, you know, like, like Stepford family on the outside, right? Appearing very competent, confident, you know, happy from the outside. The scapegoat often has nothing to do with that and is very interested in trying to bring attention into some of those, you know, darker and more painful sides of the family structure. Now, before I talk about the workplace, I think it's really important to say that, especially in the, in the current climate, at least here in America, people of minority status often get put into this role because of stereotypes, because they are different from the typical team. And that's incredibly unfortunate. And we wanna spend a little bit of time talking about that during this presentation. Now, someone that has a minority status or is from a different group, they might see things and believe things that are different from the typical culture, right? There's things that they don't take for granted and they don't have the same assumptions. So they are in a beautiful position to actually see the dysfunction in the workplace. And oftentimes they're the target of dysfunction, right? They are not clued into norms that the team already has, right? They don't know what the dress code is, for instance. They don't know like how what we do things on Fridays or the way that things are communicated, the way that conflicts are resolved because they have an outsider, outside perspective um, they're actually going to be able to see some of these things. Again, really, really good if the leader is open to feedback, if the leader is able to listen to them, create space instead of dismissing or pushing them away. So it's really important as a leader specifically, but I think you know everybody, to look at implicit bias that you might have and how you might be pushing away what could be an incredible asset to your organization or your company. We have some resources at the end that talk about this in more detail. Um, do you want to add any, something on this point? Because this point's really clear. Yeah, I just want to say that um, sometimes companies want to have diversity, but they're not willing to have diversity. So they might recruit, especially in America, we have this recruitment of people with minority status, Black people, brown people, LGBTQIA, um, people with certain um, differently abled bodies. But actually, the company has done nothing to create real space for those different voices. So what we're asking someone to do is to come into a place that has inherent racism or transphobia or, or any other kind of problematic behavior toward those particular groups and just somehow change the organization by being there, being different in there. So if that happens then that person might say, hey, there are some, some policies here, some stuff here that are happening in this company that we need to look at. And if the company is not willing to look at it, they might be placed on that scapegoat role, even though what they're saying is completely valuable. And they were invited in on false pretense that this is a company that wants things to be varied and there is a, a sense of liberation and an invitation to challenge the hegemony of, of um how we do things in Western culture. So just pay attention to it. That, is this person really a scapegoat that needs some coaching on how to give feedback? Or is the company needing to look at itself and does, do some systematic work to, to make some changes um, so that 
all different people will have room and space and voice within the company structure. So um, I'm going to send you, Mark, to continue talking about how that looks like in a workplace when it's actually a scapegoat role for someone. May I ask you something at this point? I was just wondering whether... um, whether there could be uh, personality profiles, not necessarily uh, minority groups that are considered as scapegoats, but just personality profiles that don't fit the, the company culture. I'm, I'm saying this because I remembered when I first started working about 15 years ago in the controlling department and we had all done this Meyer Briggs personality test. And I was a complete outlier. So I didn't fit in any of the... Um, the triangles, the pies. Good for you. uh, (laughs) Anybody else? (laughs) I mean, I I was also a a visible outlier. I was dressing a bit different and so on. This doesn't mean I was bad. I was actually very good at what I was doing, but um, I was an outlier to the team and I, I, I was not a minority at that time. I'm Bulgarian. I was working at a Bulgarian company, but I was different in terms of personality. So I was just wondering whether this uh that could totally minority Mm -hmm. so if you are just different maybe you have your own quirkiness or you just come from a little bit not a different culture as in like completely culturally a different group but just your family culture how you respond to dress codes for example it's just not how this company does things and then the question is how rigid is this company do they follow particular rules that does not allow it? And then what does it mean for you? If you if it doesn't mean much for you and you still fit in because your opinions are being valued and your voice is creating richness and people want to hear from you and there's a good working um, alliance between you and your bosses and your colleagues, right? Maybe you can flex and dress a little differently. However, If you are, at least in America, if you're a black woman, for example, your natural hair is not accepted as professional. In fact, in certain kind of like manuals, you can see unprofessional hairstyle and a lot of them are black and brown people wearing their natural hair. So for you to comply with with the way you're supposed to look means inhibiting a natural aspect of how your body operates. And that has damaging effects on your creativity, your sense of freedom. So you might be the wrong person for a particular company for many, many reasons. But for you as a Bulgarian woman who is white and I, I know that you're educated, it's not because you are Bulgarian or white or educated. It's because you have a unique personality that may not be matched. For somebody, again, here in America, at least I don't know much about uh, the European culture as much, If you keep not feeding in different workplaces and you are a black woman, for example, then you can have a a very fair assumption that the reason that you don't have space is because you're a black woman and the company just has some racism in it. So it's, it's not that easy to decipher and we need to listen to these voices. If most people of color um, in a particular company either don't get promotion or leave after a while, then we need to ask them. What do they say? How do they view it? Um, do they have room to express themselves? And that's, that is very tricky. I'm not pretending that it's easy. And companies now 
might be wise to, um, to invite anti-racism trainings, um, anti-transphobic or anti, um, any discrimination um, practices to learn about themselves and how they might be able to change. And they'll benefit from it. They might not benefit from it in that tomorrow. They'll benefit from it because human beings are so rich and varied and amazing. And a company that has that freedom will probably create products that are much more robust, better, um, and take into consideration different human needs when they do it. So that's my little um, political spiel. Um, yeah, awesome. Thank you. This. Thank you. This was amazing. I also have the observation that uh, it's really about race. It's not so much about nationality because I was working also for quite some years in Austria and I was progressing much faster than I was progressing professionally when I was working in Bulgaria. So I was really pushed forward. So it's not my nationality, I would assume that 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 it's really race that inhibits yeah. people's progression. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It's the stuff that, you know, race is a lot easier to see. I think it's really what it boils down to. Right. And people's assumptions and implicit biases get activated then. Um, I think, you know, this role can also show up without the race context, which I think was also your question because of how we grew up in the family. Right. So for me, as an example, I get really afraid, frankly, when there is something toxic happening in a team and nobody's talking about it. I actually feel very unsafe and very worried. You know, if there's like a, a domineering boss, right? Or there is someone that is lying or there's someone that is breaking the rules or cheating or things like that. And no one says anything, I get, I get scared, right? And when I get scared, I start to talk, you know? And I get this scapegoat role put on me because I, when I'm talking, I'm often very blunt and direct. And I'm saying like, look, this is wrong. This is what's happening. Like, why are we fixing this? Does no one else see this? You know, I can get pretty activated um, and find myself in that scapegoat role. Um, even though I am, you know, a white heterosexual male, right? Um, I'm in that dominant class and then that dominant, you know, all the top of the, the pyramid right now, um, I can still find myself in that role because of the way that I interact with teams. And I think that's true for other people. Um, it just happens much more frequently if there is a race or diversity difference uh, because it's often put on them, right? Against their will. They might not have that role in their family, but they're getting that put on them because of that perceived difference. Yeah, I, I want to say that the way we are in our family can can be traumatic. And then if we have if we were the scapegoat in our family because the family was very problematic and everybody was working very hard to have a facade and not to really deal with the problems and just look okay. And I am the person who's like, hey, something here is wrong, or and then I would get in trouble or be pushed aside. I might inadvertently create that again for myself in other groups. Mm -hmm. And people have an uncanny way. I don't know if their pheromones are coming up to just pull from others the response that they dread the most. So when we say role, that's what happens. This person just sees a problem and they want to say, hey, this is a problem. They might have the best intention. And somehow the way that they pose themselves pulls for, to being pushed away, to being pushed aside, to being criticized, to being disliked because of how they're saying it. Um, so that's what we want to focus on. Is this person really, like you said, it's a personality thing. The way they are invites creation of scapegoating. People want to push them away. They don't want to deal with them. And it has nothing to do with their race or their gender. If we see that in this particular company, 
when black people or when women raise something, it is dismissed and they're pushed aside, then they're not the scapegoats because of how their family was. It's because there is an intolerance um, or some misogyny or racism in this company that needs to be addressed. And we're careful with that role in specific because we don't want to give anybody a weapon to push somebody who's already in a minority status. We want people to really notice, is this person making a problem for themselves, regardless of who they are and their, their different identity statuses? Because it happens. And then, and they might have really valuable information, something we need to hear. If the company has an open ear, we can actually work better together. So Mark, I'm gonna let you do the how to manage. Right, yeah, so this is an important conversation, something maybe we can address in you know, grow and learn, learn leadership number two. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I wanna get back on time for, for you know, time management's sake. So with these people, you wanna be curious about the issues that they raise. Um, even though, like we're saying, they might be coming across very direct, even sometimes aggressive, clumsy is probably a better word for it. The idea is not to take that feedback personally and to listen to what's going on. And as a leader looking for that systemic issue, right? Making it about policy, making it about culture, not making it about you personally. Um, even though they might be saying, you do this, you do that, really think about, okay, the leaders in this company do X, Y, and Z, or the management does X, Y, and Z. Really trying to find the nugget of truth in what it is that they're saying. You wanna keep in the loop about changes and communications. Oftentimes, if you work for a big corporation, even if someone's raising a really legitimate issue, it might take months, weeks, if not years to have any kind of change. And these people are often left in the lurch where it's like, yeah, I had this powerful conversation with my boss and then nothing changed, right? So as a leader, you wanna be saying like, okay, look, I talked to X, Y, and Z. It's on the timeline for our next agenda, a next board meeting that happens quarterly. You know, hey, here's a minor change that I can make right now that's within my power. And I'm talking to people higher up to make the bigger change. So really being clear about what's happening and how you're communicating. And lastly, if these people, again, asking for consent, but oftentimes if they are, you know, passionate about a topic they're bringing up, they often have creative solutions. So you can empower them. You can actually reward them by giving them a leadership position around the issues that they're raising rather than just saying like, yeah, 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 you know, we'll handle that later, right? Um, and these people are often because they're passionate, they're motivated to make some of these changes in the organization. So instead of taking away power, which typically happens to a scapegoat, you want to give them power. You want to give them the ability to make some changes on their level that might help. Um, and make the company a better place for everybody involved. Yeah, if you can recruit them, they might be your star employee. Mm -hmm. um, the clown or the mascot is another family role. This is often the, the youngest child, um, but not always. Um, and this is a person who has a hard time with emotions and they want to diffuse any emotional tension or emotional um, a heaviness through humor. Um, they're desperate for approval a lot of time. They want the family to feel different. So they're trying to create a different feel. They can't tolerate the tension in the family. They're emotionally out of sync with the rest of the family sometimes. Um, they can't tolerate their own vulnerability and they don't wanna express their needs. So they're kind of like this frantic, can't sit still, let me make this emotion go away kind of person. In the workplace, that kind of behavior, it could be great. Maybe you need a little bit of, a, of levity and, and laughter. When it's a, it's a locked role and it's a problem role, they might derail the conversations in meetings. They might make light of problems. They don't want to feel that there's a problem, so they're going to make a joke, but the problem is not going to go away with that. Um, 
focus on the mood of the team rather than the task at hand, um, they might derive a lot of social capital from the workplace. So their sense of self-esteem, their sense of self is derived from how others respond to them at work. So they're, they're getting kind of secondary gain and they could be inappropriate sometimes. So the way to manage them is monitor um, the team for a sense of belonging. So do they feel like they belong in this team? And do the team feel that this person belongs as well? As, is the team enjoying them? Do they need them? Is it actually great to have this person because actually we're meeting deadlines better? We're reaching our goal better? Or is this really a problem? And if it is, you might want to talk to them individually and create space to give them feedback and opinions. If something needs to change, you need to be clear about it, especially if this person is inappropriate and allow them to lead social events. If that's their fun, if sociability is their thing, maybe there is a, a, a little bit of room for them. And I'll add something else. Ask them for serious feedback. From time to time, at least, invite them to really say what they think could be a solution. So building up their sense that they can actually meet problems seriously and have some power to solve problems um, so that their tolerance for discomfort will grow and their full potential as an employee will flourish rather than just that superficial joking around style that they bring. All right, mm -hmm. next. I think that the next one is the last one. Right, this is our last role, which is the enabler. Uh, this one requires no explanation because almost everyone knows what enabler is or has experienced enabling. Uh, but what this person is, even though they get a lot of flack and you know sometimes create a lot of issues, what they are really deep down, I think it's important for leaders to really know this, is that they are deeply afraid of change and conflict. They deeply fear confrontation. And in service of that fear, they're going to be sacrificing their own needs in order to keep the peace. They're going to be lying to cover an employee's behavior. They're going to be... Um, you know, glossing over things, saying that things are always positive, always great. You know, they're going to be having, looking at it with a rose colored glasses on the organization. When I work with teams and there's someone that I interview that always talks about how great everything is, how it's the best place to work, how there's no problems. This person is typically an enabler because again, they're so afraid of conflict that they'd rather just make everything peaceful, but, but fake, right? But shallow. So the way to manage this is to model healthy feedback within the organization, especially from leadership. And what I mean is resolving conflicts without aggression and without violence, because these people are afraid of that. They're afraid of yelling. They're afraid of being punished. They're afraid of raised voices. They're afraid of heated debates. They're afraid of, you know, a meeting where no one, where people don't agree at the end of it. So the more you can actually bring those in in a healthy, controlled and way that moves towards resolution, you can start to make this person feel more safe and move out of that enabler role and have more you know, diversity in the way that they express. You also wanna request feedback from them individually, specifically away from their team members. This person is very, very concerned with how they appear to other people and will often not be honest with you if you're requesting their feedback during a team meeting um, or in front of other people because they really don't wanna be the one that rocks the boat or that whistle blows or that says the wrong thing. So finding ways that are essentially confidential to talk with them uh, is critical to getting any kind of their real feelings about a situation. And then lastly, you don't wanna punish them for any of their feelings. Uh, you wanna validate, which we talked about earlier and we'll go into actually in a little bit here of how to work with them. But this idea of just hearing, understanding, you know, thanking them for their feedback, really being gentle when they do say something negative because it's very hard for them to bring up any kind of conflict or any kind of problem that they have with the company or organization. 
So we're now we're going to dive into what to do about these roles. Uh, we have about 15 minutes, so we're going to try to be a little bit brief and, you know, we can email out this presentation if we don't finish it during the time. So Adi, you want to kick us off with objective analysis? Yeah, I think the first thing to do is you need to describe to the person what you're, what you're seeing. If you want to open it up for discussion, you got to say to whoever it is like, hey, Joe, I've noticed something. And to be very behaviorally descriptive so that the person, because what you're seeing is an emotional reaction that's above and beyond the situation, something that's repetitive, that looks like a role came up or a very strong reaction to you that might not fit who you are for this person. So you need to do some objective analysis so you'll know what to describe to this person when you invite them to have some communication about it. Is there a problem? We want to know if there's a problem because this is a workplace, not a therapy room. And you need to ask yourself, am, is my stuff coming up? Do I have transferential feelings towards something that I'm seeing? Or is there actually something going on? So ask yourself, are tasks not being completed? Yeah, there's a problem. Do people have no way to discharge their emotion? There's, there's a lot of gossip, social exclusion. The atmosphere is toxic rather than, um, than people just saying to each other if something is wrong. Are there repeated interpersonal conflicts either between you and certain members or between um, team members? And are employees quitting? Is there some kind of rapid changes in the employee cohort? And then you might let yourself know that something is up and you might want to talk to the people who create this issue. And then you need to describe to them what you see. If not, if actually things are okay and you're meeting tasks and deadlines and people stay, then you might be the one who have a very strong reaction, maybe to one of these roles. Maybe you had a sibling that has these roles or maybe one of the, your parents had this role and you have a hard time tolerating even slightly seeing that in someone else or maybe it's a role that you don't like about yourself. If there are problems, you got to start getting curious and ask the employee or the team member that, um, that you see has strong emotional reaction to have a conversation with you and invite them by telling them what it is that you see. So the best way to get curious is just to listen. And, you know, we can say both as psychotherapists, this is way harder than it sounds, right? Our whole job is around just listening. Um, so... The first step of just listening is, you know, just what Adi said is be objective, right? Focus on the behavior as non-judgmentally as possible and leading with curiosity rather than leading with punishment. Hey, Bob, I noticed that you don't respond to the company emails. And when you do, they're late at night and they seem to be very short. I'm wondering what's happening for you uh, when you get these communications. Or, hey, I noticed that you're missing your deadlines over and over again and you tend to leave early and sometimes you look somewhat angry when you walk out. I'm curious what's happening to you in these moments, right? Instead of saying like you're doing something wrong or need to fix this, just saying, hey, this is what I'm observing. I want to check it out with you. The next thing you want to do is you want to take responsibility for your own feelings. And that's where mindfulness comes in. You want to be aware of what you're feeling. If the thing that's going on for you is an old feeling and if there's a pattern. So like Adi was saying, you could be enacting your own thing over and over again. It could, not, it could be about your sibling, right? Or your parent playing out. You want to be really aware of the role that you're playing in this problematic behavior. Hey, is, you know, I think sometimes when I write my emails, I tend to use really direct language or I tend to bold you know, certain words. I'm wondering, does that make it sound like I'm shouting or judging you? 
Or, hey, I noticed that, you know, we don't really get a chance to talk that often. I, sometimes I grab you on your way out and it seems like you're ready to get home to your kids. And I feel like there's some tension between us. Is that true? You want to really take responsibility, especially if you're a leader, for your part in the interaction. Then you want to create safety, which first is by not judging, but second, by giving enough time and attention to these issues. If this truly is a transference issue, if it's a family role issue, it's going to be emotional. So you want to make sure that this doesn't happen 15 minutes in between two meetings, right? You want to make sure it doesn't happen last thing when someone's the way out the door. You want to really have dedicated time, energy, and attention to hear people out, get curious, and to, you know, um, be with them. And then lastly, you want to model disclosure. So you want to say something linking your past to the present if you think that's what's going on for the other person. Instead of saying, hey, I think this is your daddy issues, you want to be really clear of, you know, sometimes when I get frustrated, it's because of the way I was raised. You know, I had a sibling that was always telling jokes, was never serious, and we were late to everything, and I got really frustrated with that. And sometimes that comes up when I interact with other people on the team. And it's something that I need to work on as a leader. You can model responsibility, you can model disclosure, and you can help to pave the way for them to start to think about their behavior in this way. Um, as far as a, as a workplace, this is about as far as you can go in probing somebody. You don't want to go much further because that tends to be the role of a therapist or an organizational developer or a coach where it's you don't know what you're going to hit essentially, right? So having someone with professional training uh, becomes really critical at that juncture. Um, you want to offer some support to this person because you do need to have some room for them to, to need time. They, if transferential stuff they don't resolve quickly. People go to therapy for a few years usually. Um, so don't expect it to change immediately. And that person, if they are in that space, they might not trust you. They might feel very, very self-protective because it's scary. So give it some time and you might offer them space to vent and then validate them. You might want to see if there's any training or, or system development that could help them and offer that to them. Or they might need some social support. Is there a group dynamic that unconsciously was, um, was forming that needs to be addressed? So listen to what they have to say and offer the right support. Mostly at that stage, if somebody is really that emotionally triggered and they are responding in a dysfunctional way, such as avoiding you, not reading email, having very strong emotional displays at work, whatever it is that you see that doesn't it doesn't fit the workplace, they probably need some emotional support. And the way you do it is a little niche trick, an acronym called GIVE that says, be gentle, don't threat, don't, don't say things in a, in a threatening voice, don't um, make, um, don't punish, don't be, don't be aggressive with the person, just gently tell them, hey, let's, I want, I want to be helpful. I like your work. I'm seeing that lately, da-da-da-da-da. Let's, let's work on this in an inviting and gentle way. Act interested. You might not be that interested in their family drama. You're, still, you're their boss. You're working with them. You're not the therapist. But you can still act interested. So show some interest, even if it's not 100% genuine, just for them to feel like they have a little bit of space. The information will be good for you, even if it's not riveting. Um, and validate. And validation is, is a unique thing. It's letting the other person know that you get it, even if it's irrational. So not changing it, not saying but, not giving them advice and not trying to fix it, and not cheerleading them and saying, but you're doing great. 
If somebody says, I just feel really insecure about it, saying to them, but you're doing so well, that's not validating. That's cheerleading. Validating is saying, I hear it. I hear that you feel insecure. I totally get that this particular task is making you feel insecure. So really seeing it from their perspective, even if it makes no sense to you in the moment. And be a little easy-mannered. Use a little bit of humor. Don't be too heavy about it um, to create the give space. Yeah, so once you've validated them and the emotions are being felt, understood, you'll notice as the leaders that they tend to calm down. Right? The idea with emotions is that they typically just want attention. And I mean that, I guess maybe in the best way possible, is that the emotion tends to get louder when it feels like it's not being heard, met, and in the worst case, it can be acted out. So if you can do this give thing that Yadi is talking about, you can support, then you can really start to get the person down or to make real decisions and have to have lasting impact that will hopefully help them avoid those types of triggers in the future. So the way to do that is to request some very clear feedback. Again, we've talked about this a million times, but the main thing is focusing on objective statements and outcome measures, which is just another reminder not to be um, judgmental, right? And try to make things as concrete as possible and allow people to succeed, right? Let them know what works and what doesn't. You want to see if their feedback supports or contradicts your organizational values. Many companies, especially in the modern era, are really about trying to create a culture, right? Trying to create, you know, a set of values, trying to create, you know, a workplace that the employees can believe in and relate to. One of the major benefits of this is that it can come in during these conflict sessions and help to resolve issues to say, hey, we believe in transparency. So thank you so much for telling me about what's going on for you. I really wanna know about your insecurities and I wanna know what the impact that has on you. Hey, in this company, we really appreciate um, you know, commitment. And I can see that you're trying really, really hard and that you're committing. And it's actually some of the ways that I'm communicating that's getting in the way of you doing the work that I know that you wanna do. So bringing up, connecting it to larger system helps them feel included and gives you a common language, right? A way that you can sort of talk about these issues as it relates to the system rather than the two people individually. Then you want to move into problem solving, right? Because it still is a workplace. So you want to present some potential solutions, a way to measure them. The second part is really important. Um, we talked about a lot with the scapegoat, but I do think it translates to all these different roles is that the people want to feel like what they're doing is actually having a real impact, that they just had this, you know, emotional, you know, outburst, they had a difficult day at work, and they want to know that they're being heard and that changes are happening in a very real way. So figure out ways to measure, you know, things getting done, employee satisfaction, um, things like this, and let them know that it's helping. Right. And the last thing is that, right. Scheduling to follow up meetings to say, Hey, you know, how was that conversation? How'd that go? Um, and seeing if the solution was helpful. Now, this is important to do in the longer term. In the short term, you probably just want to say, hey, thanks for talking to me and give them a very simple task to do, right? Let them switch their mind back into workplace mode um, and give them like a very clear direction, very clear management, let them feel validated and then be like, okay, now let's go work on this thing together. Um, but, you know, a week, two weeks, then you want to have that follow-up meeting and just make sure that you didn't forget what happened, right? Make sure that you're still giving them attention that's still on your radar and that you're still valuing the fact that, that they did disclose to you, right? That you did talk about their family, you talked about their upbringing. Um, that's very vulnerable for people, especially in the workplace. It's not something that's very common, but when it is used effectively, it can be quite powerful. Um, so we want to make sure that we're practicing the quorum. Um, we want to have some kind of 
containment, um, some kind, we, we want to be the container for things. We want to be professional. Um, it is expected from employee, but mostly from the leader. Um, we want to show them that we, we, we're doing all this so that the workplace will be a workplace, not a family drama and not um, a therapy room. So the leader is, is responsible to work with the unconscious dynamics of themselves um, and to see that there is maladaptive behaviors. The group, the team needs to know that you're going to handle it. Um, respect people from different backgrounds and cultures, as we said. Do not pathologize things that are not pathological and show that and model that. Um, the objective measures that Mark talked about, people need to know that they're doing well and they need to know it um, according to something um, that's concrete and predetermined. And seek support outside of the organization when your own family patterns are coming up, especially if they're repeated and very intense. We always call for a deeper, um, deeper work if possible. Which is our final slide. Uh, it's a call for deeper work. So if this, especially if you're listening to this, if this is triggering a lot of thoughts, memories, even emotions in you, there's a call to deeper work. And I will say, you know, as a psychotherapist, that there's no shame in this. Actually, high-level leaders, what I found is that their problems aren't with the technical part of their job. It's actually with the emotional and soft skills part of their job. This is a thing that's often holding people back from the advancements and from the ambitions and dreams that they want to have right? That can show up like substance use, TV, video games, overeating, procrastinating, you know, having anxiety before meetings, all these types of things, intense emotions. Um, this is a call to do deeper work, to get yourself into therapy, to find a coach, to find an executive de uh, organizational developer, anything like this, um, to start to do that work and refine yourself so you can live the life you want and accomplish the goals either personally and professionally that you, that you want to have. So we have some so, books here. Yeah, go ahead. Right, and I do want to say that the um, some of what we talked about today is taken from an article by Seth Berenstein from 2013. Mm -hmm. I, we don't have a reference list here, so I just wanted to put it out there to give credit where credit is due. Yep. And we have three great books here, Leadership on the Line, Emotional Intelligence, and then Race, Work, and Leadership. This last book is if you really like the conversation around race dynamics in the workplace, um, this book is a great place to start, to start to learn about some of this. Um, it's written by people of color, and it talks about their experience um, directly, which is something that is, you know, when Adi and I were doing some research, is painfully rare in this industry. So we want to find a book that really highlights those authors um, and give them some, some platform during this presentation. And we have one minute for questions, if anybody has questions or comments. Well, the, uh, the, 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 first of all, thank you so much. This was so insightful for me. And um, I'd like to give now room for the participants to ask any questions. I have two questions of my own, but I'll give them some space first to ask their questions. But again, thank you so much, and especially for the for the examples and the, for the for the communication examples. What specifically we could um, how to address the people? This was very useful to me. Thank you. Thanks. And if people are comfortable putting the camera on, we would love to see you. But don't feel obligated. <laughs> um, can you unmute yourselves, or if you are you able to, you should be able to. If anybody wants to ask a question. Maybe you not. should ask the first one yes. so we can uh... <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was just wondering whether, um, whether 
you can give some advice on leaders how to discern between uh, dysfunctioning corporate culture and uh, a family dynamic that is being playing out, played out. Because, I mean, how, how would you assign a problematic behavior um, to a certain family dynamic while it could actually, I mean, you addressed it uh, partially, but maybe you can go deeper. So th I think one thing that comes to mind as you asked it is, do, do you have, do the team by and large talk to each other? Is there a good feeling? Um, do people like coming to work, staying? If they, When they have a problem, when something is not working, do they come to you and say, hey, you know, this thing is coming up, this, you propose this change, I'm a little concerned. And it's a, it's a, it's a um, amicable, conversational, you know, the prosody of the tone of voice, it, it just flows. Um, do you have a channel of communication to the upper management? When you tell them, hey, my employees want this and that, do they say like, let me take it into consideration? Do you get answers? Um, then you know that the organization is working when people keep quitting or you accidentally hear in the bathroom some really nasty gossip or real complaints when actually nobody ever says anything negative or if anything happens you say that there's a change proposed there is hostility oozing from people or they explode or they non-verbal communication is how you know people are dissatisfied then that means either there is a cultural um the culture of, of the organization is robust and good or dysfunctional. Now, within a working cultural organization, like it's, it's working, if somebody suddenly leads up and you see an emotional response that is more extreme or unusual for this person, say that this person typically comes on time and then maybe a change were proposed or, or you don't even know what's happening and suddenly they're late all the time. Um, maybe a new employee came in and suddenly one of the old employees, their work behavior has changed. Then you're like, oh, maybe something is here. When there is a stark change or what you see is very elevated, you know that an emotional response is unusual when it's fast it's like zero to 100 when it's intense and when it's prolonged. Most of us, if we are mostly regulated, our emotion looks like this. We have peaks, but they're not like very extreme. So we get irritated and a little anxious and we get happy, but we don't get rageful out of nowhere and stay rageful for a long time. So that might clue you in that old stuff are coming up, that it's historical. Yeah, the only thing I would add, uh, great, I mean, you covered a lot of it. The only thing I would add is, again, that call to the deeper work, because especially if you're a leader and, you know, work a lot with small teams, sometimes or oftentimes it's you, right? It's your family dynamics. It's your recreation, especially if it's a startup where the roles are not clearly defined or there's not really a clear policy or a culture yet. People are often recreating their family dynamics as the leader. So I find it really critical for those people to be in that kind of deeper work or to be doing self-development, reading about it, taking courses like this, um, to start to put the mirror on themselves. Because especially if you're a new leader, you're not used to the leadership part, right? Management is a whole skill and it's actually quite different than the technical skill that is usually the foundation of the business. So being really clear that, yeah, it might 
not be them, right? It might be the leader or the boss that is bringing that out and that is recreating it, even though there's different characters, right? There's different employees. The same thing might be happening because of the leader's own unconscious and their own family roles and transference that are coming up. And so the other question that I had was whether these roles could be uh, mixed, whether somebody could exhibit uh, aspects of a certain role and you know, mixed, mixed aspects such as and, and the hero or something like that. And what do we do then? <laughs> so like we said, the first and foremost is like, is this a problem? Like somebody can like display roles and it's not a problem. It's great. We need a class clown. Does this class clown meet their deadline? Do they do quality job? Are they creative? Do they contribute to the to group and also are funny? Then there's no problem. The, you, the problem is if somebody is both the clown and the hero and that they're like rigidly, that might mean if somebody does embody those two, for example, that they can't tolerate any emotional tension. The hero wants to solve all the problems to get everything perfect, all ducks, on row and sometimes things take time they can't tolerate it and the clown wants everything to be light and and funny and just like no problem no problem are they both avoiding problems in a way that doesn't give people space to talk about it and brainstorm solutions um are they trying to make problems go away by overworking or by being too flippant about it that's when you gotta talk to them and then the answer is what we talked about today Call them in, say, hey, Joe, I've noticed that every time there is a little bit of problem, you take on more and more responsibility and that you're working until midnight every day. And as much as I appreciate it, I don't know that it's sustainable. Let's talk. Who expected you to do everything? Or, hey, Jenna, I noticed that you've been cracking jokes every team meeting, and I think you're hilarious, and we never get to actually solve the problem what's up? I'm just wondering if like these problems are making you nervous. I know that there've been a lot of changes lately. Let's talk about this. Um, and it doesn't really matter which role is coming up, but I will say that there is an advantage. If somebody can embody the different roles at different times and they're flexible about it, then they might be a very rich individual that, that has a lot of wonderful emotional qualities. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Like, Actually, the most healthy person is the person that can move between them freely and has what's called psychological flexibility and is able to see things through perspectives, work in different ways and not get stuck in the role. When someone feels stuck, that's the trans that's a good signal of transference when they actually don't want to be that role, but they find themselves saying and doing things that they did as a child, right, to feel lovable. They find themselves almost impulsively repeating what they've done. Um, and for some people, especially if they have some, you know, emotional intelligence, psychological development, that action will actually feel painful for that because they, they're like, oh, that acting like myself, like something is happening here. I don't usually get this angry and yet, you know, here I am. So there's usually a sense of, you know, friction there. Or they might be like, I'm always in this position. I start new jobs and then somehow I burn myself by being one of these roles. And that might be very painful for somebody who really wants to excel and has potential, but for whatever reason, they're so trapped in their past that they come to every situation recreating their old drama. And if that happens, there might be some trauma 
there might be some really deep neglect or abuse in the past and that person is trapped in something um and you know a compassionate boss can make a huge difference in a person's life um and really unleash the potential for for very successful employment it you don't always have the time and capacity to to be that that nurturing to your employees but you could suggest like do you want to go to therapy here is some things that i think you can improve on i see you're suffering it's good to have psychologically minded bosses that can can help you move forward um i'm, I'm very mindful of time i don't want to keep people who need to go um does anybody I have, have any a, questions yeah And if not, maybe you can uh, share your contact uh, details and tell us where people can find you if they need uh, consultations sure, or I, trainings. Um, I, I'll tell you, uh, my email is dradiavivi, so Dr. Adiavivi, but not the full word. So dradiavivi at gmail.com. And you can email me if you want to. And I can also be find, found as Dr. Avivi. Um, on Facebook and I have like a Facebook page. I'm not very savvy technologically. Mark is better that way. You can find Mark easily and then he can send you to me if you can't find me <laughs> these two ways. No, I, I mean, I will have your uh, contact details of course yeah. under the video, but just yeah. in, in case I'd like yeah, yeah. to hear it as well. And yeah. Mark, what is your website called? Yeah, the best way to find me is go to the website, which is mark-azulay.com. It has all the social links there. I have a podcast coming up. I have some online courses. So um, you can also just Google me and it'll come up. And yes, uh, if you can't find a D, talk to me and I'll <laughs> put you in contact with her directly. Awesome. Huge thank you. It was amazing. It was very interesting to me. Hope people find it useful as well. You know, it it's, for me, it's definitely worth it uh, to look at ourselves from a deeply psychological perspective and see how we act too. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for Thank having you. us. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.